0: This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Last week, we considered the overwhelming historical evidence for the existence of Jesus. The reality of Jesus being a living, breathing being is not just documented in the Bible. It's documented in non-Christian ancient sources. So the existence of Jesus is not just a Bible thing. It's a world history thing. Now, once we establish the fact of Jesus's existence, it forces our hand It forces your hand, it forces my hand. We have to spend time and energy trying to figure out what kind of existence Jesus had. Now we're going to be using the primary source documents to determine that. The Bible, the Gospels in particular. The fact of the matter is, there is more literary evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is for Julius Caesar's invasion of Gaul a historical event I was taught over and over again in school as bedrock fact. The reliability of the New Testament documents are more well-attested than any other document of the ancient period. Now, specifically, we're going to use the primary source document of Luke to meet the real Jesus. Last week, we looked at Luke's preface, the introduction. It's his way of giving us the purpose for which he's written this Document And he tells us that he's written it for a a gentleman by the name of Theophilus, likely someone who was curious about Jesus, maybe new to the faith, maybe some dots that weren't connecting for him. And so Luke tells us that he has carefully investigated everything through eyewitness accounts and documented it in this piece of literature so that Theophilus and all those of us who read it will know the certainty of the things it talks about. Now, we're going to be picking up Luke's biography of Jesus's life when Jesus announces publicly his mission statement. First statements, first public statements are often weighted with importance. This is the first public statement Jesus makes that pertains to why he's come. So we're going to pick it up in Luke's gospel, chapter four, and I'm going to read verses 14 through 30. Jesus returned to Galilee and the power of the spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. drove him out of town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Jesus' mission statement. That's what this passage is about. That's what the story is about. What he's come to do. We're going to look at it. What he came to do, who he came to reach, and how he would be received. What he came to do, who he came to reach and how he would be received. Number one, what he came to do. Why did Jesus come? Well, we can look at all the action verbs in Jesus's statement. There's a list of them. He said, here's why I've come, to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for the prisoners, set the oppressed free, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So it's three proclaims and one set free. And of those three proclaims, two are identical, meaning to preach. And the third is to evangelize. Jesus came as a preacher and evangelizer. Jesus came as an evangelizer. He came to persuade people to follow him. I don't care what your religious background is or isn't. Jesus wants you to be a devoted follower of him. When you look at your own life, how successful has Jesus been at evangelizing you? Has he successfully persuaded you to follow him? So if we're truly going to meet the real Jesus, not the inaccurate replicas that we see in Renaissance art, or television preachers or popular culture references, if we're going to meet the real Jesus, the one documented in the primary source documents, we're going to have to pay close attention to his words. Maybe this is stating the obvious, but to be a Christian is to prize and take seriously everything Jesus has to say. In fact, one of the implications of calling yourself a Christian is that you agree to believe everything Jesus says. We're not free to accept the things we like and discard the ones we don't. We're not free to approve of the things that make us feel good and jettison the ones that rub us the wrong way. As we proceed through Luke's gospel, not everything Jesus says is an easy pill to swallow, now, this doesn't mean that Jesus was just a great preacher or a great teacher because the substance of his words won't allow for that restriction. His teaching and preaching are the focal point of his ministry, but there is a thread in his teaching and preaching that indicates he's come, he's come to do something much more than teach and preach. Now, what about this freedom for sinners and set the oppressed free comment? I find it interesting because there is no record of Jesus setting literal prisoners free. None. As an illustration of this in the previous chapter, one of the Jewish leaders, a guy by the name of Herod, had been confronted and called out by John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin. Herod was a shady character and into all sorts of nefarious stuff. And Herod didn't appreciate being outed by John the baptizer, so he threw him in jail. John is literally a captive. So if setting captives free is what Jesus came to do, here's his opportunity, golden opportunity, which may explain John the Baptist's confusion a little later in Luke. The imprisoned John sent his friends to deliver a question to Jesus, essentially asking, are you the one we've been expecting or should we look for someone else? And what does Jesus do in response to John's question? He goes on to heal people of diseases, plagues, evil spirits, and blindness. And then he tells John's friends, go back to John and tell him what you saw. And John is still in prison and he remained in prison. Jesus never set literal people from literal bars free, which means this action verb is talking about something else. There are spiritual overtones to Jesus' use of the words release and set free. In fact, it's interesting to trace that out throughout Luke's gospel. Set free or release or freedom is used very often when the topic of forgiveness of sins comes up. So the long and short of it is this. Jesus came to proclaim a message of good news, news that included forgiveness of sins. The notion of forgiveness of sins is a recurring theme in Jesus's ministry. And it's one we desperately need today. We all have an intuitive sense of our need for it. Franz Kafka Uh, explores this problem in his book, The Trial. Joseph K. is the main character, and he's having a relatively normal life when he's arrested and taken into custody. But nobody tells him what he did wrong. He asks and he asks and he asks, but no one ever gives him an answer. He's moved from one prison cell to another, then one hearing to another, but he's never told what he did wrong. Joseph puzzles over this his whole life. He says, maybe it was for that. Have I been arrested for that? I did do that. Maybe that's what this is about. But he never finds out. He never finds out. In the end of the story, one of the prison wardens stabs him and he dies. In one of his diaries, Kafka says something that may have been, that may indicate the theme of his book. He said this, the state in which we find ourselves is sinful, quite independent of guilt. In other words, he's saying that we have this eerie feeling that there's something wrong with us. We all have an inescapable sense that if we were to be examined, we would be rejected. But we try to deny it. The book, the story, is illustrating our need for forgiveness. Every one of us here intuitively knows our need for forgiveness. We try to work it off work it off by attending church or volunteering at a local nonprofit or doing our best to be kind to people. And we think, well, if at the end of my life, the good outweighs the bad, then I will have earned my forgiveness. But that badly misses the point of forgiveness. Because in the middle of this word is a clue as to what it is and how it's obtained. It's the word give. And we'll come back to that shortly. Jesus came to announce good news, news that he declares to be good, news associated inextricably linked with the forgiveness of sins. Second, who he came to reach. Jesus says he came to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, there's no question Jesus came to proclaim the message of salvation to the materially poor. That can be noted by simple observation. Jesus often ministered to the materially poor In pastoral ministry. I've often observed the fact that material hardship often makes people more receptive to the gospel. Affluence can camouflage our need for Jesus. There's a reason Jesus says blessed are the poor instead of blessed are the rich. The poor are often more apt to see their need than the rich. But the word poor does not have an economic overtone exclusively. It refers to all those who are open and sensitive to the Lord. In fact, in the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the term poor is often used to convey spiritual receptivity. The people Jesus came to reach are those who are consciously aware of their spiritual bankruptcy it's the spiritually brokenhearted. It's those who understand their spiritual weakness and impoverishment. Now, how do we know that's what Jesus means when he's talking about the poor? Well, helpfully he gives us two examples in the, in his, in his story, in the story, he provides two examples of the poor. One is this widow from Zarephath. We could go back to the old Testament, and read the story. I'll just summarize it for you. She's a widow and she is in a, a state of grinding poverty. You could not find someone who was lower on the social ladder and in more dire economic straits than her. There was a drought. She only had a handful of flour and a little oil. She's got a child to care for all by herself. And so she says that she's going to prepare one last meal so she and her child can eat and die. It's a picture of absolute material destitution. The prophet Elijah says the jar of flour will not be spent. It's not going to run out. The jug of oil was not going to run out. And a miracle has worked and she's provided for This is one of the examples that Jesus is saying when he's talking about the poor. But the second example that Jesus offers is Naaman, the Syrian general. The story is almost the opposite of the widow. If the widow was at the very bottom of the social ladder, absolute material destitution, the description of Naaman, the general is one of someone at the top of the social ladder, wealthier than anybody else. He's a commander of the Syrian army. He's called a great man. He's highly favored by the King because he's just been victorious in battle. He's called a mighty man of valor. Well, he has the king himself seeking out his healing and the king sends a letter and accompanying the letter is 10 talents of silver, 6,000 6, shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothing. When Naaman finally shows up at the doorstep of Elisha, he, he shows up with horses and chariots. In other words, this man is a man of incredible wealth. And Jesus uses both Naaman and the widow as descriptions of the poor. Why? Because they both knew their need. The poor widow knew her need, and Naaman, despite all his material wealth, knew his need. So if these are the examples of good news for the poor. The poor has more to do with spiritual impoverishment and strictly with material destitution. Jesus' mission is to announce the good news of his saving power and his merciful reign to all who are brokenhearted enough to believe. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, Christianity simply does not make sense until you have faced the sort of facts about our sinfulness I have been describing. Christianity tells people to repent And promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel that they need any forgiveness. It is after you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind the law and that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power. It is after all this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. Neil Shenby put it this way. He said, until our sin becomes an unavoidable existential reality in our lives, we will see Christianity as at best a harmless social pastime. Now here's the kicker about Jesus's reference to the widow and Naaman. (laughs) Both were religious outsiders. They weren't church people. Jesus characterized the primary targets of his ministry, not in terms of religious background, but existential need. He came for those who know they're on the wrong side of God's moral law. He came for those who know they are morally bankrupt. He came for those who have a sense of guilt gnawing at them. Here's the long and short of it. Let me sum it up for you. If you are a righteous person who has no sense of guilt because you have your act together, Jesus has not come for you. But if you are acutely aware of your unrighteousness and your need for forgiveness, you are precisely the person Jesus has come for, regardless of your past. A somewhat tragic story of Michael Richards illustrates this point. Most people know Richards as Kramer from the television sitcom Seinfeld. A brilliant physical comic, Richards returned to comedy clubs after Seinfeld's eight-year television run had ended. And he probably would have found immense success in the stand-up world given his level of fame. But one fateful night, he responded to an African-American man in the crowd with a slew of ethnic slurs. And an arsenal of cell phone cameras caught it and the video went viral. Richard's racism destroyed his career and it harmed him far beyond the stage. He made several appearances on late night television shows, apologizing profusely. But the sincerity of his contrition never opened up doors for more comedy gigs. And as best I can tell, he still has not found absolution. Seven years later, after that event, as he and Jerry Seinfeld conversed on the internet program, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, they broached the painful subject of Michael's meltdown on stage. I busted up, Richards told his obviously concerned and compassionate friend. It broke me down confessed it as inexcusable. He said it was a selfish response. I should have been working selflessly. He even told how he tried to escape by taking a solitary vacation to Bali, about as far away from the comedy club as he could. He thanked Jerry for, quote, sticking by me, but admitted, inside it still kicks me around. If you watch the episode, it's hard not to notice the pain in Richard's face and the equally intense concern on Seinfeld's. Trying to offer pardon, Jerry said, Well, that's up to you. If I were you, I'd tell myself I've been carrying this long enough. I'm going to put it down now. And as the camera zoomed in on Richard's, he softly replied, Yeah, yeah. I'm not convinced he's found the forgiveness he's looking for. Despite the pronouncement from the high priest of comedy, Jerry Seinfeld, Michael Richards' sin needs more than just the self-effort of letting go of a burden. It appears to me Richards is painfully aware of his unrighteousness and his need for forgiveness, but to my knowledge, he hasn't found the only one who can offer it to him. And as I watched that unfold, I thought to myself, how many of us are quietly living lives with the same pain that Richards carries around? If you are acutely aware of your unrighteousness and your need for forgiveness, you are precisely the person Jesus has come for, regardless of your past. Now, someone may say, well, it sounds to me like Seinfeld is saying, why can't Richards just let it go? Sin doesn't work like that. Kafka has it right. Underneath the surface of our lives is a nagging sense of guilt that we just can't let go. If I came to your house and I broke one of your fine china dishes, there are two possible outcomes. I pay to replace it or you pay either by paying to replace it yourself or living without it. There's no conceivable way to just let it go. No, a debt has been incurred and it doesn't just magically disappear. Somebody has to pay. This is how sin works. As we live day to day, we incur incur debt daily we make this derogatory comment, we have this lustful thought, or we simply treat Jesus as wallpaper. Yeah, Jesus is over there, not a big deal. We rack up moral and spiritual debt faster than any government. How does it get paid? Debt doesn't vanish. Someone has to pay. Behind me on the wall is a cross. There are many reasons. It's a fixture in most churches. That is the means and the place where your debt was paid. What do you call it when I break your fine China dish and you don't make me pay for it? What do you call it when I break your fine China dish, but you don't make me pay for it? What do you call that? That's called forgiveness on a much grander scale on the cross, Jesus paid your debt. And the cross gives you a graphic picture of the cost of your debt. Are you still trying to pay it yourself? If you are a righteous person who has no sense of guilt because you have your act together, Jesus hasn't come for you. But if you are acutely aware of your unrighteousness and your need for forgiveness, you are precisely the person Jesus has come for, regardless of your past. Third, how he would be received. Those gathered in the synagogue that day who heard Jesus' first public declaration of his mission did not respond well to him, to say the least. They became furious with him drove him out of town and attempted to heave him off a cliff look up here not everyone likes jesus not everyone likes jesus we have to accept that reality and we've got this tagline out there people they like jesus they don't like the church they like jesus but they don't like the church First of all, if it's a slogan, chances are it's wrong. Let's take that to the bank. What happened? How could you not like Jesus? Well, let's dig into this. Jesus, first of all, was a common name in the first century world, kind of like Mike today. We hear Jesus and we automatically think, yes, Jesus. In that day and age, they heard Jesus say, yeah, what about Mike? Mike. So in his cultural context, there's nothing extraordinary about his name. Additionally, he was from Nazareth, a little town of 500 people, 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. It's his hometown. So this man with a very common name who grew up in Nowheresville, where everyone knows your name, is the one who just read from the Old Testament, from the Bible, and declared the passage he read is about him. Now, they may recognize some admirable aspects to him. Perhaps they appreciate his wisdom. They recognize he's done some mighty things. But what they can't figure out is how this man, this Jesus from this small town, could speak like he did. So they ask a question. Isn't this Joseph's son? Now, Jesus' antagonistic response in verses 23 and 24 indicates that that question was defamatory. In their eyes, Jesus has presumed too much about himself. He's not staying in his lane. He is flaunting without warrant. There is an air about him that Jesus needs to be put in his place. Isn't this Joseph's son was intended to disparage, not celebrate him. Think about it. He grew up among them. He pounded nails for them. He ate meals with them. He attended synagogue with them. He looked just like one of them. That he could ultimately be something beyond any of them was unacceptable. They were simply too familiar with Jesus to be impressed with him. This is Mary's son, a carpenter, a boy who grew up with us, Joseph's son. Now, what do we say today? Familiarity breeds contempt. Well, maybe we could tweak it. We could say familiarity breeds unbelief. As a thought experiment, think about allergy shots. Some of you know those well. You're allergic to something. I just says, come on in. We'll test you. And you find out what are you allergic to? You're allergic to everything, everything, And so the theory is, it'll give you a shot of the stuff you're allergic to so that when you encounter it in the world, the real world, the real thing itself, it doesn't bother you anymore. Isn't that a danger many of us have with Jesus? Just enough Jesus to be inoculated against the real thing. Just enough church, just enough songs, just enough Christian music on the radio, just enough conferences, just enough Christian books. Some of us are so familiar with Jesus, we're no longer impressed by him. And that is a terrifying place to be. There are many people in this country, maybe even some here this morning, who confess faith in Christ and you go to church, but there is nothing going on in you spiritually. Might you be like the people of Nazareth? Oh, sure, you appreciate the show he puts on. You recognize some special things about him. You admire his aptitude and character. And if Jesus can be useful for solving a few problems, great, wonderful. But are you acutely aware of your unrighteousness and your need for forgiveness? Have you felt in the deepest part of you your spiritual impoverishment? Have you acknowledged that nagging sense of guilt and what Jesus came to do about it? On the cross, Jesus paid our debt. The cross gives you a graphic picture of the cost of your debt. Question, what's that worth to you? Or said better, if Jesus has done this for you, what's he worth to you? Tim Keller put it this way. He said, when a great big truck goes over a tiny little bridge, sometimes there's a bridge quake. When a big man goes onto thin ice, there's an ice quake. Whenever Jesus Christ comes down into a person's life, there's a life quake. Everything is reordered. If he was a guru, if he was a great man, if he was a great teacher, even if he was the genie of the lamp... There would be some limits on his rights over you. If he's your savior and forgiver, you cannot relate to him at all and retain anything in your life. That's non-negotiable. Anything, any view, any conviction, any idea, any behavior, any relationship. He may change it. He may not. But at the beginning of the relationship, you have to say in everything, he must have the supremacy. Have you undergone a life quake? In light of who you are and what Jesus has done, does he have the supremacy? Let's pray. Lord, sometimes it can be difficult for us to convince ourselves we're that needy, that we're that broken. The person here who may not see that, may not sense that, may say to themselves, I'm not all that bad in comparison to other people. I'm not all that bad. God, I pray that you would show them that the comparison is not run horizontally. We don't measure ourselves against one another. We have to measure ourselves against the only God, the creator, the redeemer. And when that's the comparison, we realize how far short we fall. But we thank you, God, that you have not left us in this state of dirt and unrighteousness and sinfulness. That at the outset of your son's mission in the world, he declared, I have come to deal with that. I have come to set people free from their unrighteousness. I have come for people who acknowledge their need for me, regardless of their past. That's who I've come for. So, Lord, as we ponder that, I pray that you'd melt our hearts before you. Where Jesus has been demoted, I pray that he would once again be placed on the throne of our lives. where in all things. And what we think and what we say and what we do, that he would have the supremacy. We ask this to the glory of Jesus' name, amen.